You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Theft was the fear, theft of an idea that, unmoored from its true genesis inside one mind, might readily be snatched, passed on, proclaimed by an impostor as his own. The law protected property, but not the private prinksings of a bold, inventive mind. The master knew this more than most. Had he not come back from a trip to Holland the preceding year, muttering about a book he'd seen with images and words printed from wooden blocks? A man with half his wits might see how easily those lines of wooden letters could be sawed apart. Had he not sworn them all to secrecy and double-locked the shop and the men with it every night and morning? Had he not hidden all his life, as he hid now behind this subterfuge, installing every evening the fake molds for making mirrors in plain view? Alex Christie reviews books for The Economist. Her first novel is Gutenberg's Apprentice. Thank you for joining me, Alex. Thank you so much for asking me. Alex, one of the things I love about this book is that the thing you are holding is actually an example of what I would suggest is the oldest still-working technology on the planet that's pretty much the same thing that we had that was invented by Mr. Gutenberg some 560 years ago. That's exactly right. That technology has not changed. It modified itself slightly with the invention of the steam engine. It became mechanized, but the actual inked letters impressing it to paper was unchanged from 1454 until about 1968, 1972. that's one of the things I think that I, I love about this book is it's such a great perception of technology. And in fact, it's so much about such a, a different world and the introduction of a technology into that world. I suggest that while it's all based on history and set in history, you could easily look at this as a science fiction novel in terms of you create a world to us that is entirely alien, where the relationships between people, commerce, the church are entirely unlike those now. Mm -hmm. And into that world, you introduce a new technology that changes that world. Well, you know, I think that's the history of mankind, isn't it? That we are trundling along, minding our old business, and then suddenly out of the left field comes this brand new, completely radical new way of operating. And we're living through a period like that right now. And I think that people have always talked about the impact of the printing press and how it changed society and changed the entire way that humans thought and acted and allowed democracy and free thinking. Um, but no one ever actually looked at how they, that came about. And I just thought, this is a really interesting story that I've never heard. We've only ever heard about Gutenberg the man. Um, but nobody has really ever tried to describe what exactly they did in the, in the middle of the 15th century when this thing suddenly appeared. There's a concept in the science fiction world called the singularity, and Ray Kurzweil has written about this in the nonfiction world. He suggests that some 30 years from now, uh, computers will have enough uh, horsepower to equal humans in thinking. At that point, they'll begin programming themselves, and at that point, the world before and the world after will be completely divorced. That's pretty much what happened back in 1453 with the invention of the printing press. It's incredibly interesting, the impact that technology has on human consciousness. So what happened with the invention of printing is that 
the previous way of being was entirely God-centered. You had the people believe that the Lord determined all past, present, and future, and they lived within a very enclosed system. And man had no independent will or ability to change things. And that changed radically. So the last 600 years, we had the Enlightenment. We had the gradual evolution of the individual as a human being in charge of his or her own destiny. And as you say, with the singularity, one of the interesting things about digital technology is this idea that we're turning in back into the hive, sort of one way it could go. Either we'll I think we'll either scatter into many tiny points of individual atoms, or we'll all, as, as Kurzweil suggests, you know, merge into this sort of hive mind, which is kind of terrifying in my view. <laughs> um, well, one of the things I, that I think you do really well in this book is set up the historical background, which is really unfamiliar to us. As I was reading this, I'm just going, wow, this is creepy and awful and, and terrible. So talk about the church, which in that time had, I think, even more influence than the Koch brothers, but they're pretty similar. <laughs> It's a good analogy in terms of big business and money. To It's always about economic interest. So mm. the church, the Roman Catholic Church, was the leading power. It was the only power fundamentally. Even the, the secular powers, uh, they all had dual allegiances. And so there was nothing that anyone could do um, because the church, the pope, appointed the cardinals, who appointed the bishops, and, and it was a very, very complex um, Ponzi scheme, I would almost say, of extracting wealth from the poor and distributing upward to Rome. You know, and, and, and they were very, very efficient and very effective at it. And, and part of the way that they did that was by holding truth, and only they could dispense the truth. And the, the average person didn't read, and they believe, had to believe. The, they were told, raised to believe that they needed the intermediary of the church to get them into heaven. Um, so that kind of, I wouldn't say that we're in quite as bad a situation in terms of, you know, complete power over our mental, physical, and spiritual beings um, from uh, people who control the political process in the U.S. But uh, I think that the, there's all you always follow the money. It's always about the money, you know. And in this day and age, I think rightly people are concerned about the co the concentration of power in a few giant tech firms, without much accountability. And there was no accountability in to the Roman Catholic Church either. You know, you could get ex you could, were excommunicated and went to hell. And, and like corporations, the church operated outside of. Uh, state boundaries and, and the boundaries of countries. And mm -hmm. in many countries, the kings and queens were considered to be appointed by God. Yeah, and it was in a pre-nation state period. So mm -hmm. this was the Holy Roman Empire, which didn't really collapse until various nation states began to federate in uh, the 17th century, in the 16th and 17th century. So uh, they, the kings and the queens, everyone was go, was going for power. You know, that's the that's the name of history. You know, you had feuding people going for power. But what's interesting about that period, the period of the late Middle Ages, is it's very similar to the period that we're in now because it was kind of an edge period in history because you had a growing merchant class and you had growing education and, and there was this hunger uh, amongst. The, uh, the common people to get a little bit of the goods, you know, because the wealthy, it was the end of the feudal period. The wealthy people had controlled things forever. And uh, part of the reason that printing came into 
the consciousness. Or there was a need for printing because there was growing literacy. There were more and more people could afford to send their kids off to university. There was it's, it's very similar to what we're seeing now in the third world. You know, we have suddenly uh, the rising tide is lifting more boats, and more and more people have the opportunity to get education, and and it creates disruption in the status quo. As a novel, this is really a compelling piece of work. It's it's a complete page turner, even though it's a piece of historical fiction where, in theory, most readers should know the basics of what happens. Gutenberg invented the press, and he made a Bible, and there you go. So I'd like you to talk about creating the suspension of belief in that getting readers to suspend their belief that they know what happened and invest in the way the characters see things so that as we read this book, we, like the characters, feel like we don't know what's going to happen next. I think that the great challenge with any kind of work that starts from something that we already know is how to, as you say, put us back in that period. And the wonderful thing about fiction is that you can put yourself into the character who, of course, doesn't know the outcome. We today know that the Gutenberg Bible exists. So for me, the challenge in writing it was not so much to say it exists, we know it exists, but to ask how did it come to be. This book is 1,282 pages. It's the most valuable, most famous book in the world. It has this huge historical significance, but we don't really know much about it. And so as I began to research, the first thing that really got my interest going was some research into how Gutenberg made his first types, which I had read in 2001. Um, and it just start, sparked my interest because I'm a printer as well. And uh, I looked into the story and I began to realize that there were all of these other people involved that we had never heard about. We only, if you go to the Wikipedia entry for Gutenberg, which I would not recommend, um, you know, the same story has been handed down over four or five hundred years that the great man Gutenberg invented printing. But of course, it's a much more complex story. So for me, the challenge was to first understand the story, the real story, as much as it could be shown in the historical record. The fact is that there is very little documentary evidence left because of many centuries of warfare. <laughs> the Napoleon, Napoleonic troops were through Mainz and burned and looted, and the Nazis, the Allied uh, forces, destroyed much of Mainz in the Second World War, so there's not much documentary evidence left. Um, but there are a few scraps, enough for us to reconstruct very much about how the physical book was made. There's lots and lots of analysis of the books themselves. And there are bits and pieces, fragments about these individuals who were real individuals. So for me, it was a way, uh, the quest, the challenge was to imagine a story that would place this momentous invention in its, his, in its context, in its moment in history, and say, how did they do it? Who were these people? And what, what were the challenges? And it was extraordinarily difficult, technically very, very difficult. And as I started to research more, it became clear that it must have also been socially and economically really complex because, as I said, they were living in this time of incredible strife between the aristocracy with their vested economic interests and this rising class. And Gutenberg is, was a member of the aristocracy. Fust, his financier, was a member of this new breed of man who was a merchant. And so there was just a tremendous amount of potential conflict that helped me to imagine a story that would be compelling page-turning. Now, in order to do this, you have to create a great create a great gallery of characters some of them based on on real characters. Talk about creating 
uh, Gutenberg, who's really a joy to read about, maybe not so much a joy to work for. I think we've all had bosses like Herr Gutenberg, you know? <laughs> um, actually, when I was early in early drafts, when I was workshopping it in my writing group, one of the women said, my boss is just like this. I, I tend to think, and if you think about great human creators, think about great innovators, uh, great artists, people who tend to be very brilliant and very driven are often very abrasive and not very, uh, don't have a lot of emotional intelligence, what we would call emotional intelligence, can be brusque, disruptive. In the tech world, without naming a lot of names, it's well known that Steve Jobs was that kind of character. Um, someone yesterday in another magazine article said Larry Ellison was like that. Um, I think that it's in order to prevail against the kind of obstacles, you have to be an absolutely driven, almost blinkered, single-minded, focused type of individual to prevail. Because Gutenberg took probably 10, 15 years to develop this technology from its first beginnings because he had started it before he came back to Mainz in uh, 14. 49 or so. He um, he had lived in Strasbourg for 15 years before that and doing all kinds of other ventures. So he was a serial entrepreneur and we knew a lot about his, he, he left a trail of lawsuits in his wake, which is another indication, partially of a litigious character, but maybe not so bad because that's a lot how they did business in those days. But one particular lawsuit really seemed to me to tell something about his character. He was sued for breach of marriage contract, and it's mentioned in the book in passing um, by a real person named Anna of the Iron Door who thought that he was going to marry her. We don't know what he did, what they did together, but she sued him. He resisted in court, and she, he ultimately won the suit, but he was fined by the judge for the foulness of his language in lambasting one of her witnesses. So he was a choleric type of guy, I thought. That was the, I, I, but on the other hand, he was brilliant and, and both attractive, charismatic, and yet very abrasive. Now, our main character, Peter Sheffer, you create this kind of framing device where he's looking back. But when we first meet him as uh, in the, his earliest incarnation, he's not a very likable guy. And I really like how much he resists this, what to us in with our 2020 hindsight seems like the golden opportunity to work on the first iPhone. Exactly. Well, he he was a real person. He was a very, very famous printer. He, uh, in fact, he founded the Frankfurt Book Fair. He invented publishing. He invented the title page. He and Fust, uh, after the, the workshop, the period of the Gutenberg uh, Bible lasted roughly five years from 1450 to 1455. And the reason that story for me was so dramatic is that it blew up and ended up in a lawsuit and acrimony and the partnership collapsed. And Schiffer and Fust continued. And Schiffer published and printed something like 300, novel, uh, 300 books and was, uh, to the end of his days, a very wealthy and successful printer. He was eclipsed by other later printers, but he is documented to have been in Paris in 1449 working as a scribe and a calligrapher. And he had beautiful handwriting. I've seen his handwriting. Um, so somehow or other, he ended up in this lawsuit as a witness for Fust, and we have a document for the lawsuit. So there are these little facts. We also know that he, the framing device you mentioned, he did talk to the abbot Trithamius in 1485 and told him his story about the invention of printing because this particular abbot was very young and roughly, actually a little younger than um, Peter, 
well, quite a bit younger at that time, but he had the ambition to write a history of the Rhineland and kind of include all of human knowledge in one tome. And so he he actually did interview, and there's in his chronicles, he wrote two chronicles, he talks about talking to Peter Schiffer and asking him how printing came about. So I took these facts, and I, and I thought, Peter Schiffer is someone who no one has ever heard of. I found a biography of him that was written in 1950 that was just translated into German with a fabulous foreword, which really helped me to understand that if there's one thing people sh- I would like them to take from the book is that this was a collaboration. It wasn't the single lone genius Gutenberg. It was a, a trio. They called it the Holy Trinity, Trinity uh, in the, along the Rhine and the oral sources. There were all these poems about these men who invented printing, and it was a holy trinity of Fust and Schiffer, the scribe, the venture capitalist, and the inventor. So uh, I found him to be a really wonderful way in to tell the story. And yes, he's unlikable in the beginning because he's, you know, he's a snot-nosed 25-year-old kid. He's having a great time in Paris. He doesn't want to be dragged back to this backwater, you know. Paris was the most exciting, biggest city in the world at the time. And Mainz had 6,000 inhabitants and was on the wane for sure. So the last thing, he, you know, think of it today. You know, you don't want your parents to drag you home and put you to work in dad's, you know, print shop. You want to go build the iPhone. As I read this book, all I could think of was the modern-day equivalent. The whole startup fever and team team effort, small team, uh, it's all right here in this book. This is why I was so excited to see that Walter Isaacson's new book is called The Innovators, and it's telling the story of his, the history of Silicon Valley, not as this story of these the Zuckerbergs, the Jobs, the Ellisons, but as collaborative efforts of unsung teams. And it's just out now. And I, I actually think, you know, even though mine is fiction because no one knows for, for sure, um, I do think that that is, it had to have been a team because it was such a large undertaking. You know, inventing uh, an entirely new technology, which in a way was really repurposing existing technologies, you know, it was a very long, very difficult iterative process. It cost a lot of money. Um, and startups, start. It's. I think each generation or each generation of historians views the past through the own, their own optic, you know. And uh, an expert on the Bible who I'm friends with in London, uh, who used to be the keeper of rare books at the British Library, she said, you know, that 19th century romantic view of Gutenberg as this lone genius came from Carlyle, from the great man's idea of history. But now we stand in the 21st century and we know how things come about. And it's, you know... Oppenheim and his circle for the bomb, you know, it's the tech industry and the defense department. And it's, it's, a, it's a collection of individuals' small steps. You know, it's very much a process. I really like all the, the characters you create for, for Gutenberg's team and, and the way you kind of bring them together and, and let them bubble up through the narrative. And I, as you were writing this book, did did you like didn't know their character arcs or how that would work out or did did was it more just organic uh, following as they created the invention the invention created the characters? It's such an interesting question about the whole process of writing. I think I, I had Peter very very fir- at the very beginning. His voice came to me right at the very beginning when I started writing this book about seven eight years ago, and um, Fust grew out of 
I, I wanted there to be a positive, happy relationship. And, and even though initially the father-son thing is a bit strange, you know, I think that he was a good man. I do. I think that he's been demonized by history so much. So I, I felt it, that he was essentially a decent and devout person. Um, all of the men in the workshop, you know, they come into view as you write the scenes and they become more particular. The thing that really struck me about medieval Germany, and I'm married to a German and I've lived in Germany, and it, you know, we all know as a culture they're extremely technically able, and they always have been. You know, it goes back to the 15th century, Nuremberg. They made clocks. They made the most precise, beautiful things. And so I thought that the idea of the workman, you know, is a really, it's the artisan who is an expert in their craft, a master. I was really interested in this idea of mastery and how we achieve mastery and how long it takes, which I think is important to stress in the world we live in. Um, so, you know, someone like Hans, who is the, the master goldsmith who teaches Peter how to carve the letters, um, he... He, he was a little bit a mixture of my grandfather, who was a type founder, um, you know, and other types of experts who I have known who tend to be, again, very, very modest often, you know, single-minded, focused, um, very focused on the work and less interested in the ego, you know. So they all kind of bubbled up. And the other thing is I gave them all the names of people that we know because they are documented, were early printers. Now, whether or not all of these early printers were trained in Gutenberg's workshop, we have no idea. But it stands to reason that they learned it somewhere, because five or ten years later, these people, Ruppel and um, Heinrich Eggstein, they all were printing in and around Mainz. So I thought, well, let's throw them all in the workshop and see what happens. You used an interesting word, artisan. It's often meant to kind of refer to somebody who's more workmanlike, but it has this word art in it. And mm -hmm. I think that you do a great job of showing the import of art and when it comes to creating technology. It's often mm -hmm. thought that it's just tech and math numbers, but no, no, there's imagination and inspiration mm -hmm. there, isn't there? Well, when people talk about mathematics being beautiful, you know, I'm not mathematically inclined, but I know, I have friends who are mathematicians, and, and numbers have beauty, you know, and I think technology, beauty, I had a line in there at one point about that beauty is the face of God, you know, and they lived in a God-centered universe, but we as humans respond so much to beauty. We have such a developed aesthetic sense. And I mean, Steve Jobs, part of the success of Apple is because he insisted on beauty. And I do think that those two things go together. You know, you, you want to create something that is pleasing to the senses. Um, and it has, it has a resonance for us somehow. So, yeah, I, don't, I just don't believe in these sort of Manichaean divisions between things, you know, between digital and print. And I'm very interested in the fact that a lot of young tech people now today want to be makers. And they're involved in the maker movement, and they go out and they get their hands dirty. And a lot of them are learning letterpress. So, you know, we're, we're both godly and we're both animal. You know, we have both elements in our nature. Our intellects are very, can be abstract, but we're, the, the workshop was a physical place, a really physical down and dirty place, you know, and, and I, I think that we need that. The, the thing that worries me about the, the way we're heading is, is how abstracted we're getting from the body, you know, and how distant uh, we, we are getting from just the, the earth. You know, in that sense, one of the things I think is very interesting is that the first part of Peter's apprenticeship is essentially almost, it's drudgery and almost torture, uh, except for when he's being used as a spy by his 
father. So talk about that, the import of that. I mean, that is actually important to, like, I think, lose yourself in the stupidity of what you're doing. You know, it's interesting. So he had been a scribe before, and, and the scribal work in the monasteries, the, the people who wrote down scripture, they were meant to empty themselves of ego. It's very interesting. It's very similar to the Buddhist idea of uh, that, that you are just a conduit for the Word of God. And that, I think, was something that was very much part of his being as well as, as I imagined him as a character. And I've been an apprentice as well in a print shop, and you are a grunt, and you are the lowest of the low, and you sweep the floor, and, you know, I actually had to build fires. So it's there's something very humbling. I think humility is a really important aspect to creation. Um, I certainly have been humbled in the act of learning how to write a novel because you have to fail. You have to fail over and over. You have to get back up. And it's very humbling, but it's also extremely important, I think, because it allows you to put aside your own grandiloquent ideas of you know who you are and what you're achieving and just focus on the work because it's only the work that counts. You mentioned... Uh repeating and the iterative process and replication of results is really important in science. It's also important when you're developing technology and developing a business model as well. You need to be able to figure out how you're going to sell and keep selling. It's just not, that's why we're moving towards this kind of uh, subscription economy that once they get us on subscription, we're there, we're theirs for life. (laughs) There's a wonderful, wonderful book by the philosopher Richard Sennett called The Craftsman. And he talks about this as an essential human tool of learning. That, so the idea of mastery is precisely this iterative process. So it's a psychological process as well, which you could be applied to any type of work you undertake, is that you have to continually do it until the activity becomes innate and instinctual, at least in terms of creating a, a something, if you're an artisan in any way. And he actually talks about Linux in this book. He has a whole section on, on Linux. So I do think that that we know now that the failure failure is essential you know and the only way that you can actually perfect is if you continually try something and see push the edge of it a little bit you know and peter's doing that you know the process of the invention of printing occurred over a decade probably and the scholars do not know with certainty when exactly the final product that we know this hand casting device which had been was then used for a half a millennium basically they don't know exactly where in the process it came and that was one of the challenges and one of the fun parts of doing the research was i sort of decided i would in figure it out myself or at least get a theory going of when it might have happened and who might have done what at what point. Because, you know, I kept thinking, you know, Athena does not spring from Zeus's head full-blown. She does. But, you know, no invention springs full-blown out of nothing. It takes a long period of trial and error. And so science and art are very similar in that way. Well, I really love—one of the things I love about this novel are the moments when we see something that we— take for granted that we know all along invented and it, it practically if you are if you've ever like tried to set type or do something in PageMaker Photoshop or even Microsoft Word which means most of our civilization there are parts of this book that will practically make you cry with joy to see it happen for the first time so talk about crafting these moments of invention and you don't have to say what they are but just to 
create that kind of tension and, and release in, in the prose and in the plot pacing. Well, I think that um, we all have that experience of time slowing down when things really important things happen. And I think in fiction, that is one of the great tools that you can use to create pacing and suspense and, and focus is that when you come to a moment that's important, for the, they've been slogging away and slogging away and suddenly they have a breakthrough of one kind, you slow it down, you bring in the lens and you go right inside the character and, and, you, and you just expand that for as long as it takes to really express that moment. And then it has more resonance, you know, and it becomes a, a significant moment in the book. And I think that uh, that's really the whole art of, of plotting a novel. And it's something I had to learn over this long process. You know, if there are so many things going on at once, as an author, you have to keep all these different sort of uh, layers moving at the same time. And, you know, you have an external plot with drama, but, you know, you also have these moments, these quieter moments of character development, you know, where the characters come to see things in a different way than they had at the beginning. And that's one of the things I think that's really interesting is that uh, Fust begins to see the implications of what Gutenberg can before Guten before uh, Peter does. And there, there's one moment where he says, "I'm you disappoint me, Peter. You of all people, not to see what this will be. It sounds crude and ugly, cop it." It's, I see a crude and ugly copy of the best that man can do. And this is just, you know, you just think, well, that's like our CD, CDs are terrible. We need vinyl records. It's such an ongoing trope with technology, you know, mm -hmm. and that's where this whole thing about the Luddites versus, you know, the evangelist comes in. But there's always this reaction. And so it was very easy for me to transfer it backwards. And I think it was probably very much the case. And I know it was in terms of the religious reception of this, of new technology. But, you know, there's always that push-me-pull-you, you know, where someone says, this is great, this is going to be wonderful, and the other person says, well, yeah, but what are we going to lose? And you do lose. With every new technology, there are trade-offs. You have great, great advantages, and you have costs. And I think the most important thing is to always recognize what the costs are and be willing to accept that those are the costs and that's the trade-off. And Fust, you know, he's a merchant. He's a businessman. He's a bookseller. He was one of the first booksellers. In those days, merchants threw all of ver a variety of goods in their wagons and went on these long-haul journeys and sold a bit, you know, tinkers door-to-door to door, um, at a higher level. So he sold manuscripts, and he knew. He understood very quickly. He grasped that, oh, you can make a bunch more for the same price in the same time. This is fantastic, you know. And I think Gutenberg obviously understood it. He, was a, he invented mass production. You know, he understood what he was doing, but he maybe he, I don't think as an inventor, he wasn't that much of a businessman. I think he was a poor businessman, actually. Um, but he definitely invented multiple, you know, mass production of the same identical object. That's one of the things that's also really interesting about this book is how many inventions come out, concepts come out of the single concept of the printing press. It's not just books. It's, as you say, it's mass invention in itself. It's the first factory. Exactly right. Exactly right. And they came, they came out. It, it's also a big difference in working relationships because at that time it was a guild system and it was a closed shop system. In, And it, it was an interesting way of doing business because all of the people who made hats or all of the people who made saddles, you know, 
did it together and worked in the same street. And there wasn't competition in the way that we know it. It was sort of like there was a, a given market of a certain size, and they split it up amongst themselves. And then suddenly you have this completely new industry that is going to be selling something that no one has ever seen. This is very much like the beginning of the dot-com boom. And the, the thing I always think about is Webvan, if you remember the ill-fated Webvan, which was a massive investment of money in a new technology, which was grocery shopping delivered to your house, uh, that nobody knows what the market is yet. It doesn't exist yet, this market. You have to manufacture the market. You have to tell people, here's a new product. You're going to like it. You're going to want to buy it and buy it. But the massive amount of investment up front is huge. And what happened in the first 20, 30 years of printing is that everybody piled in, everybody invested fat, masses of money, and then it all blew up just like it did here in the first dot-com boom. All of It was called the Wild West of printing and the time of enormous bankruptcies because, you know, nine out of 10 print shops went belly up in the first 20, 30 years because they all rushed in. Well, we never got web van, but we will get web drone. <laughs> Yes, brought to you by Amazon. <laughs> uh, and there's a famous quote by uh, Charles Fort who says that uh, every technology has its time, and we don't invent steam technology till it's steam engine time. I think this book is largely about that, about the invention of technologies at a time when society and when business and commerce are ready for those technologies to enter and really uh, essentially explode what is there exists at That's that time. exactly right. That's exactly right. It's you know it's in the air du temps and 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 a lot of people have talked about if it hadn't been Gutenberg it would have been someone else, you know. And the interesting thing is and I and I, the excerpt that I read at the beginning talks about this is there were efforts going on in Europe at the same time other people, other goldsmiths tinkering around with this same idea. And it's not known whether or not Gutenberg and Fust knew about these things. I, in the book, I suggest that they did, and they were racing to get there first. Um, but it was a it's hard to say, looking back, whether it was an obvious thing or not. But, you know, there was a demand. There was a demand for books that could not be met by scribes. Because there was this growing middle class who wanted learning and who wanted books, and the scribes couldn't keep up with the demand. And Peter tells his father that when he's at the Sorbonne. You know, they're penning madly, as madly as they can, and they can't keep up. So it took someone to put together a variety of different technologies that existed in a new way. Because that's what he did. The wine press had existed for centuries. Mainz is in the middle of a fertile wine-growing region on the Rhine. And uh, so he repurposed that. He repurposed the technology used for making coins to strike a mold to make a letter. Paper making had come in. That was the other key invention, that there was paper, because it was very expensive to kill all those calves and make all that vellum. You know, that's part of the reason books were so precious and rare, so much so that they were chained to the pulpit and they were chained in libraries so that no one would steal them because a, a, a handmade book was worth, it would cost as much as a house. There's a great uh, chained library in England. Oh, I must go see. I know there's one in Holland as well. I've seen photographs of the one. It's, it's in the, the Plantin Museum, which is uh, one of a, a 16th century print shop.
It's in Hereford. In Hereford. All right. Yeah, it's well worth seeing. It's I will it's go see. it's amazing. One of the things I think that is really interesting is the fear that all this technology always creates. You write the world is flooded now with crude words, crudely wrought, an overwhelming glut of pages pouring from the scores of presses springing forth. And this is just like the Internet info apocalypse. I'm very glad you read it that way because I was, you asked earlier whether I was consciously writing about these parallels. I, part of the reason that I structured the book as I did with some sections where the older Peter can look back and reflect on the technology was that I wanted that opportunity for him to kind of assess how the uptake, how it had all gone. And and at the time, which is 30 years later, not so good. You know, they initially the church thought this was a wonderful thing because it standardized the liturgy, so they liked it. Um, but as I said, then a lot of people started getting in the act. The printing quality was terrible. You know, it was crude. It was crummy. It was a bit like, you know, the blogosphere now, you know, where you suddenly, there's no control whatsoever. And it had been a highly regulated business before writing and making books. And the scholars were very distressed. You know, they thought that the book had been cheapened. And and, it, and so there was a, a real backlash against the technology at first. And, you know, it, it also ended in censorship um, during the period from 1485 to Luther, because very quickly the church realized, ooh, horses out of barn door. You know, the people now have an opportunity to express themselves. They can re- start reading by themselves. They don't need the intermediary of the priest to tell them what to think. And so censorship was instituted in about 1480. And uh, that they had lost their ability to control the, the minds of the people around them. And one of the things I think that I really liked about this book is you do a good job of showing the power of the church, the way it controlled not just the lives of the people through religious teachings and religious prohibitions, but also the way that it essentially gobbled up all commerce and all money and made sure it had all the money. And those churches look really beautiful now because in much the same way that I would presume the Koch brothers' mansions look pretty nice too. Yeah, it's um, it's an amazing fact. And it's actually, I believe, still true today that the Catholic Church pays no property tax. So in a town like Mainz, where they owned 60% of the properties, this was a real revenue problem for the city council, you know. And so basically what you had is you had the working class doing all the work and, and being, you know, having as the money to run the city squeezed out of them fundamentally. And that's why it ultimately exploded in civil war um, about six years after the Bible was printed. Uh, the whole place, they got fell at each other's throats. And the archbishop took over and crushed the guilds. And that attempt at sort of democratic self-rule was ended for another couple centuries. One of the things I like, too, is that this book talks about how how we learn and the importance of learning you know he at one point peter uh, says he i'm still convinced it is the only way to learn truly learn the sacred texts and practice pious discipline and self-denial that the only way to learn is by virtue a, a religious way but that's proves has proved to not be the case well, I suppose it's important just to remember that the whole book is pickled in religiosity because the entire world was religious. And it was not pickled. pickled. I like 
I was pickled for the time I was writing in it. I dragged my family to more Gothic churches than you can imagine. But um, so they, you know, that was the lens through which they saw everything. You know, so he was speaking there about the work of the scribe and the work of the 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 person in a monastery whose job it is to communicate the word of God. You know, and so. It comes back to what I said before about this loss of ego. But yes, they had no individuality. They did not exist as individuals in the Middle Ages people. They existed in communities and in guilds and in in small collectivities, and and they all had a place in God's divine plan. God doesn't seem particularly divine in (laughs) presence on this earth in this book, I have to say. Really? Maybe the divine aspect, but the church... Not so much. Well, I mean, this is one of the things it's probably quite easy to demonize the medieval Roman Catholic Church because we do all know what happened. You know, the, Martin Luther used the printing press in 1517 to publish his famous theses arguing that nobody needed to have a priest to intervene between them and God. You could have a direct relationship with God. And that started the Reformation, and it ended the power of the church. So in a way, it's a bit mean of me to you know make them so kind of diabolical and evil, but they're a pretty easy target. And they were incredibly, uh, I won't say corrupt. I mean, the corruption of the church and the whole the whole racket in indulgences, which were these letters that the church issued. It was kind of a bond that they issued to raise money um, to build churches and bridges and all kinds of things. I mean, they had their purpose, but a a whole lot of that money got siphoned off and ended up in other people's pockets, you know. And that, sadly, is kind of a behavior that goes on today. And, you know, there are good church people in the book. Nicholas Kuzanis, who was a reformer who tried to change the church from within, he was a very important figure in the late Middle Ages, a uh, great humanist. Uh, but that he, that was the kind of the last hope for reform from within. And he, you know, uh, I think Peter is a, is a devout person, and uh, hopefully it's not too devilish. No. Now, one of the things that happens midway through this book is they have their 9-11 moment. Talk about <laughs> Yes. It was uh, Eastern Rome in Constantinople in 1453. On May 29th, 1453, was besieged and overrun by the Ottoman Turks by a very bloody sultan named Mehmet. And uh, it was an absolutely shattering moment. It was I was thinking a great deal about 9-11 when I wrote that scene because it was of equal devastating significance to the entire Christian world because the the Ottoman Turks were very powerful. They were intent on wiping out Christianity. And by knocking out the Eastern outpost, which is what Constantinople was, you know, they, they started sweeping through the Balkans, through Greece. They got all the way almost to Rome. And, and it, the Pope and everybody from the Pope on down tried to mount a crusade to repel them. But this is a sign of the decadence of the church at that time and the end of the Middle Ages is that they couldn't because people were too interested in their own self-interest and there was no ability to mount a unified counterattack. You do a great job of showing the people who have heard about this afterwards in this kind of uh, 
post-traumatic stress wandering around in a daze. I think PTSD and post-traumatic stress daze is what it was. Well, I think it was incredibly traumatic. And what happened, of course, you didn't have, it took a long time for news to come. It took two or three weeks for people to get news. So they didn't hear about it in Rome for three weeks or something. But, you know, I took one of the lines out of there from a dispatch where they said the bodies were bobbing in the sea like melons in the Grand Canal. And the Doge of Venice, you know, was a very big power at the time. And it just, what an image. You know, it was brutal. And they slaughtered lots and lots of people. It was very bloody. It was, a, I mean, the Middle Ages were a time of great warfare and blood. But this was particularly, and, you, and don't forget the other thing that happened throughout that period with regularity was the plague. So you had bubonic plague coming on those ships, going up the rivers, because the rivers were the tributaries of commerce. And so every now and then, you know, people had to, you know, pray for their lives and and stay indoors for weeks and months on end. This really puts the frighteners on, peep on Peter and, and and Gutenberg trying to get this Bible finished. And one of the things I think that you do a great job of is showing the way that what they were writing and what they were creating was affecting them, affecting Peter. So as he goes through the different parts of the Bible, he has different experiences, whether it's the begats and the begots or the numbers, or then he's finally getting into uh, the apocalypse. That was, for me, the most fun. I, it really was a treasure hunt in, in terms of trying to piece together chronology for really what really happened. And, and the fact is that back in 1923, there was a scholar who put together a production schedule based on analysis of the pages of the Bible and certain tricks of typesetting that helped them to understand that this might all these pages might have been set by this one typesetter because they had different idiosyncratic ways of setting type, and that was then uh, that entire production schedule was was confirmed by tests of the ink at UC Davis in 1985. They scanned it and they could figure out on a given day the same batch of ink was used to print four different pages. So they were able to line up. So I could look through, and I made a very complicated thing. I have the, we know what day, what order the pages were printed in, on which presses, and I then figured out which books of the Bible they were printing at any given moment. And I mean, it's probably plus or minus, it's maybe not 100% accurate, but it's quite close, I think. You know, so we know that, you know, in July of 1453, they were working on the book of Job, you know. And so for me, it was, of course he would care what he was setting. He was a deeply religious man. They lived in a deeply religious world. He would take that as um, apocryphal. It would be meaningful to him. It would be a message from God. And that's one of the things, too, that I really liked was that we're always living in the end times. (laughs) (laughs) Everything is always a sign of the coming apocalypse. I thought, boy, well, there's something... (laughs) It makes our time seem a little less frantic, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah, we're, we, I, I hope so. <laughs> uh, you know, one of the things I think is interesting is that while the Bible was the first big thing that Gutenberg did, it wasn't really in exactly the first thing he did. And so I talk about the first thing he did. And we actually had recently, a few years back, had a bestseller with a Pretty similar name. Not exactly, but pretty close. The Celestine Prophecy, Ah, if I remember correctly. Ah, yes. 
Well, the very first, this is why you see hear people fudging when they say the first printed book. They usually say the first major printed book because Gutenberg, all through his career as a printer, was very interested in job work. You know, he wanted to make money. And especially once the Bible got going, they needed to bring in some cash to keep this thing afloat. So the first book in the, in the development of the t- early technology was a Latin grammar. And that was his first idea, was this very, very bread-and-butter work. You know, people need to buy this book. It's a handbook, very useful thing. I'll sell a lot of them. So that was the Donatus was the first thing. But then he did, he came up with this idea, and they, all of these documents, all of these printed objects exist. Have you seen them all? Have you actually have, seen a, a, Guten, a real Gutenberg? Remember? I got to hold one in my hand. Oh, my God. At how? Princeton. It was so incredible. It was most one of the most exciting moments of my life. I will imagine yeah. so. Very beautiful. Very beautiful. The ink is still incredibly fresh. It sparkles. You wouldn't believe that it was printed 560 years ago. You know, it's an extraordinarily beautiful book. And they're all illuminated in different designs depending on the buyer because the buyer would commission an artist to do it for them. So no, no two Bibles are alike. And there are 48 of them. I haven't. I've only seen that one up close, but there are lots in anywhere you go. You will be able to find one in a in a collection. There are forty eight of them left, so it's really worth. They're so incredibly beautiful. You know, uh, as I was reading this, being a somewhat of a book geek, I noticed that uh, he also invented the limited edition. <laughs> <laughs> the deluxe he limited did. edition. However, they were not numbered, they nor were. were they signed. <laughs> there was no colophon. Yes. Uh, now. Uh, I'd like you to talk about creating the tension around this, you know, these moments of change. I love these these scenes where um, you're building up where Peter's working on something or Gutenberg's working on something, and we build up to these really great moments of change. Well, I think you need to have... Uh you know, I almost think of them as pivot points, you know, in a novel when things happen. And it's true in life, too. You know, something happens and it changes the trajectory of your life or your moment. And so in a in a book like this or in, a, in an inventive process like this, whether it's the invention of printing or the invention of my novel, you know, you try to find those moments where they're trundling along and something comes in from outside to affect them. And, and then they can react one way or another. And it might be... It, so often comes out of the work itself because they're trying to achieve this object. So the, you know, material either resists you or or goes along with you. And, you know, it's a struggle. It's a constant struggle with the matter. And so when they f- make these technical breakthroughs, that provided some moments of, of change. And, of course, the political situation outside was incredibly unstable. So there were lots of p- potential moments for change. And it was just a question for me in, in structuring the book of, of trying to make it, you know, not too melodramatic, but, but imagining what moments could have occurred that would have threatened the, the whole enterprise. Because don't forget, it was not in the church's interest to have the press. So I, it took two years for them to do this thing. And it had to be done, I think, in quasi-secret, because if word had leaked out, they would have gotten shut down. So there were lots of opportunities for, for things to go awry. I love the terror that they are constantly experiencing by virtue of having to keep it secret and having to keep everything in house because that just seems so familiar to the, to today's technological innovations i mean they have to hide it hide it hide it and it's becoming harder and harder and harder well and they did not have intellectual property at that time there was no copyright and so that's one of the really important things to remember is that Anybody could rip off anything. You didn't own anything. So, you know, if you had an idea or if you wrote a book, 
you know, books as an author, I wouldn't have any. Anybody could take my words, print them, and make money off them themselves. You know, so they really had to. And or that's also one of the reasons they went to the court so much, you know, to try to assert their right to own things. But no, and it, it, it it's very... And the other thing that's really interesting is there was a lot of re- reverse engineering that went on after. Once the printing came out, then everybody was trying to figure out how do they do it. And of course, Schiffer ran a very tight ship. He was apparently later a pretty tough master on his own because he didn't want it to leak out either. You know, it was a proprietary technology that he had. And other printers out in Germany were trying to reverse engineer and figure out how they did it. So there were some other bizarre kind of technological efforts that the scholars have found um, in this period of like the 10 years after the invention of people mucking around trying to reverse it and figure out how they did it. Well, you know, you talked just a few minutes ago about inventing this book, and I was just thinking about that. Here you are writing this book about an um, invention, writing a book about the invention of books, and also in the midst of a time of great invention, and that clearly is ponders that and reflects that current invention. This is like a three-layer kind of recursive uh, experience it's for a you. a Matryoshka doll. Yes, yeah. exactly. The other one, though, is it, apprenticeship for me was also a, a very strong leitmotif. You know, this apprenticeship mm-hmm. and mastery because learning to write a novel is also a long apprenticeship, you know. And, and I, again, I think the whole process of accepting failure and getting back up on the bike, you know, is part of is is part of the learning curve. And that's what invention is. That's what it's, not. it's trial and error, trial and error, you know. And the people who succeed, I think, are the people who just don't give up fundamentally. Now, in in this novel, we kind of we begin by knowing the end ourselves and also Peter knows the end. So I'd like you to just talk about like building towards uh, a climax that we think we know, but as you create it, you show us a whole lot that we don't know. And you don't have to tell us what the, the end so much, but I'd like you to just talk about crafting that kind of explosive arc. That Well, I thought it was especially with a, an event of this magnitude that everyone thinks they know about. And, it, you know, if you say printing, everyone says Gutenberg. And then if you even go a little further, everyone says, oh, yeah. And Fustin Schiffer screwed him out of his invention because that's if you read a little further into the Wikipedia thing, that's what. So you know that something went awry. But that's sort of all you know. And for me, that's one of the reasons that I structured it the way that I did was just right from the beginning to have him telling this habit. You know, it was a terrible experience for me. And I, I hoped that that alone would make people interested because it was very painful what happened to Peter. Um, and without telling what happened, you know, he, he, it was an extraordinary experience. I think the kind of experience that most of us only have once in our lives of this incredible participation in a life-changing moment, you know, and it was dramatically exciting, I'm sure. And I do think that he and Gutenberg shared a real uh, focus on quality and creativeness. They were both very creative people. So uh, there was a lot of emotional content, I thought, that I wanted to kind of explore and unpack. And the bare bones of, yes, we made the Gutenberg Bible, It's that's just the what. Well, I was interested in the how, and I think that's the interesting part anyway. And I think what this book really captures, too, is the import of the reading experience, both as part of the culture, because it was the reading experience that transformed culture, technology, the technology of mass-produced books was just a way to do that. Mm -hmm. But the book 
that we're reading is itself a Rahinian experience. So we have a kind of yet another matryoshka doll happening That's there. Very nice. Yes. No, I mean, I'm a great believer in reading. You know, I, I'm, I am an old-fashioned book person, and I print book, things on a letterpress, and I love the physical book, and my children read. And I think, you know, there's no better way to open your mind and to go into other experiences. We have no other access to other people's consciousness but through reading. Will you be preparing a letterpress version of this book yourself? I would like to, but you know how much type is in this book? It's 400 <laughs> pages. Uh, I'm, I would love to, but I think at this point it would be a bit prohibitive. It's going a little too far into the history books. Have you uh, found another bit of history you're going to explore? I have, actually. I'm working on a another historical novel that deals with my family history of Scots emigrants who became fur traders in the American West at the end of the uh, middle of the 18th century, right around the time of the Indian Wars. Well, that sounds like that'll have some local uh, interest. It will. It will. Yeah. (laughs) I've been speaking with Alex Christie. Her new novel is Gutenberg's Apprentice. Thank you for joining me, Alex. Rick, it was a great pleasure. Thanks. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.